Hello. I'd like to share one short passage from uh, Thinking in Speech, Volume 1. It's from Chapter 6. And it's a short passage that takes place during one of Vygotsky's critiques of Piaget. And uh, I'm very interested in it as, as a teacher, especially. He seems to be talking about metacognition and transfer and uh, the development of scientific concepts here. So this is a question for really anybody that would like to weigh in. And I hope it will be more than one person, because I'd love to hear from as many people as possible. So uh, uh, please consider sharing your thoughts on this passage. What, what is he trying to say to us here? Thanks. To perceive something in a different way means to acquire new potentials for acting with respect to it. At the chessboard, to see differently is to play differently. By generalizing the process of activity itself, I acquire the potential for new relationships with it. To speak crudely, it is as if this process has been isolated from the general activity of consciousness. I am conscious of the fact that I remember. I make my own remembering the objects of consciousness. An isolation arises here. In a certain sense, any generalization or abstraction isolates its object. This is why conscious awareness, understood as generalization, leads directly to mastery. Here's the main paragraph. Thus, the foundation of conscious awareness is the generalization or abstraction of the mental processes which leads to their mastery. Instruction has a decisive role in this process. Scientific concepts have a unique relationship to the object. This relationship is mediated through other concepts that themselves have an internal hierarchical system of interrelationships. It is apparently in this domain of the scientific concept that conscious awareness of concepts or the generalization and mastery of concepts emerges for the first time. And once a new structure of generalization has arisen in one sphere of thought, it can, like any structure, be transferred without training to all remaining domains of concepts of thought. Thus, conscious awareness enters through the gate opened up by the scientific concept. Greetings, Anthony. Uh, okay, I want to address your question under three general headings. Uh, I guess the first one is chess. Uh, the second one is Spinoza. And the third one I'm going to say is scientific concepts, which I'm going to replace with non-spontaneous or higher concepts, because I want to include some aesthetic concepts, some concepts about art, and even some um, ethical concepts, uh, in order to be able to tie it into the points I want to make about Spinoza. Let me start with a story. Um, when I first moved to Beijing in 1984, I got a job in a hospital. It was a cancer research institute, and we um, used to offer free cancer treatment to peasants who were coming into Beijing from the countryside, had no permission to stay there, had no medical treatment. And uh, it was a, if you like, a, a scientific exchange. The deal was they got their treatment for free, and we got samples of terrible cancers uh, that we could do research on. Now, that meant that I spent a lot of time in the terminal ward with old people who were dying of cancer. And old people in China play a game called Xiangqi, which is literally elephant chess. Uh, it has to do with a chapter in the classic of the Three Kingdoms about a battle between Cao Cao and Yibang. Uh, and it's 
very similar to Arch House, but it looks a little different. Let me see if I can show you very briefly a picture of what it looks like. This is a, a picture of some people in Beijing playing the game. And um, this is a picture of an old man teaching a young child to play the game. Uh, and I would get taught, I would take the role of the young child, uh, and the patients we had would um, then take the, 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 other, <laughs> the other role in what we were doing. And uh, yes, I'm supposed to take, yeah, right, okay. Uh, they would take the other role and they would beat me, of course. <laughs> and so I suppose I gave them some pleasure in their last days of, you know, being able to beat a foreigner and keep them out of China. Uh, and uh, I was staying with a, in a hotel in the southern part of Beijing because there were very few places for foreigners to stay back then. It was 1984. And uh, it was full of backpackers and I would come home in the evening and I would teach backpackers to play this game and I'd beat the pants out of them. And so uh, one night I came home from work and uh, chose a blonde haired, blue eyed backpacker, looked very gullible, looked like good play, uh, good prey, I should say. And uh, he beat the pants out of me. And I thought, well, beginner's luck, you know. So we had another game, we had a rematch. And, he did it again. And it was clear to me that he hadn't mastered the moves. He didn't really understand how the pieces moved. He would just say, can I do this? And I would say, yes, you can, but please don't. And he would just clean me up. So after the third game, when he had beaten the pants off of me, I, I said, how did, how did you do that? You just learned this game. It's not an easy game to play. And you just won three straight games in a row. He said, well, to tell you the truth, I'm a chess grandmaster back in Copenhagen in Denmark. And I said, yes, but it's a different game. And he said, well, yes, but you know, it's a similar way of thinking. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, it's true that the pieces are very different and that they seem to have different roles and that they seem to do different things. But when I play, I tend to see 10 moves ahead. Uh, in any direction, that you are playing the next move or the next next move, you know, the move after the next move. But I tend to see in terms of whole genres of uh, situations, many of which lie 10 or even 15 moves ahead. Uh, and that ability to think 10 moves ahead or 15 moves ahead uh, is common to Xiangqi, to this Chinese version of chess, and to, the, uh, and to the international chess that this guy was a grandmaster in. And I immediately saw what he was getting at. And what I'm gonna suggest is that um, it's related to the meaning of your quotation. That what is really saying here is that there are certain forms of development, certain forms of mental development, that whereas you previously saw only the present situation, or only the next move, or only the next next move, suddenly you can see 10 moves ahead in any direction. That enormous power, that enormous uh, abstraction and generalization uh, is unleashed in the child by uh, scientific concepts, but also by higher aesthetic concepts, uh, by logical ways of thinking. And that brings me to Spinoza. As I said, when I was talking 
uh, in writing an email on the XMCA list, I've been reading a lot of Spinoza lately, uh, partly because I want to know if it's true, as Vandeveer and Zabashneva argue, that um, there's nothing there, that um, Spinoza was a dead end for Vygotsky. Uh, they add footnotes to their chapter uh, on Spinoza that uh, it's not possible to derive a theory of higher emotions or higher aesthetic feeling or higher ethical concepts uh, from Spinoza's work. And a lot of people do read Spinoza that way as being this strange kind of God-inebriated, semi-religious, semi-mystical thinker uh, who happened to have one good idea. Deus sive natura, God, in other words, nature. Ah, it's a great slogan. Uh, what does it mean? We don't know, but it was Spinoza. Uh, a lot of people do treat Spinoza that way. Vygotsky does not. And remember, I think it's not a coincidence that Vygotsky himself was a chess player. Uh, we know this actually from the chapter in the notebooks after the chapter on Spinoza, which is all about chess. Uh, Vygotsky apparently gave a set of presentations in Moscow sometime in 1932, along with uh, Benjamin Blumenfeld, who was one of the chess grandmasters of the time. Uh, and they were both good chess players. They didn't, I mean, he wasn't grandmaster level with was Vygotsky, so he usually lost the game and then gave a lecture on the psychology of chess. And, and chess was a very interesting topic for a lot of psychologists, not just Vygotsky. Uh, Binet, for example, had discussed, had, had this thing where he would blindfold people and have them play chess and see if it made a difference and see at what level it started to make a difference. Uh, yes, you can see it's related to the question of how you see the board and can you picture the situation 10 moves ahead and so on. Yeah. Um, and lots of the studies of expertise were designed, you know, you, you, we are interested in all kinds of expertise, in literacy, for example, uh, numeracy, for example. But uh, in order to do scientific experiments on expertise, you would like some kind of expertise that is kind of independent of both of them and serves as some kind of general idea of expertise. And chess was very often used for this, and still is. You still see books written about um, not skills. You can't call chess a skill but you can call it a form of expertise. I mean, you know, the, the skill of recognizing the pieces and moving them from A to B is trivial, but you can recognize it as a, a distinct form of knowledge that on the face of it appears to be independent from other skills that are more closely tied to language. And for that reason, it's a, a very interesting area of psychological research, chess research. Vygotsky was certainly interested in it. And Vygotsky was interested in Spinoza. And I am going to read your quotation through uh, Spinoza's ethics. Uh, I'm going to take it sentence by sentence and give uh, what I think are the Spinozan roots of this. I'm not saying this is the only way to read it. It clearly isn't. Uh, by the way, Vygotsky has criticisms of Spinoza as well as uh, compliments to Spinoza. Uh, but I am saying that if Vygotsky is serious about developing a higher set of aesthetic concepts or ethical concepts that complement his writings about scientific concepts in chapter six of Thinking and Speech, which is your source text. Then I think the road to those higher concepts 
that are ethical or aesthetic runs through Spinoza and nowhere else. And, and in this, uh, Van de Veer and Zabrzeszneva are quite wrong. So your first sentence goes like this. To perceive something in a different way means to acquire new potentials for acting with respect to it. Um, this gets us immediately into what Spinoza considered the definition of emotion. Uh, Descartes had already said uh, passions are when you are passive and actions are when you are active. That essentially the whole of the mind, the whole of the human mind can be divided into taking in perceptions from the outside and giving out actions uh, to the outside once again, in a kind of a circuit. Uh, and uh, for Descartes, emotions were simply what the body does with the sensations and perceptions. And he's very good at, at uh, creating a structural taxonomy of the different passions, as he calls them, in Passion de l'âme. Uh, and he lists them, and in fact, Spinoza takes over his list wholesale and doesn't, doesn't do that much with it. Well, he does have a sort of common denominator. He says that all of these passions are variations on three, namely pleasure, which he thinks is good, not bad, uh, displeasure, which he thinks is bad, not good, uh, and desire, which he thinks is becoming. I mean, I, you've studied enough about dialectics so that you can already see that pleasure displeasure, desire, have something to do with being, not being, becoming. In other words, they're related to Hegel in some way, related to dialectics in some way. So he gets a big structural taxonomy out of, of emotions, uh, out of this division between action and, and passion. What he doesn't get is the function of emotions. It, it doesn't tell him very much about what emotions do. Why do you have this extra thing that the body does with your sensations and your perceptions. Why have this, this side effect, this byproduct, this unintended consequence? Why have fear? Fear causes us a lot of pain and torture. Why not just have a correct reaction? What's the point? Spinoza, on the other hand, defines emotions functionally. Forget about the taxonomy or simplify the taxonomy to only three elements and think about how, how the emotions either lift up or push down the ability of the body to do stuff, to, to, to take action. So it's all about actions. It's all about changing the world you live in for the better, hopefully. Uh, and it's all about being able to see far enough to enhance or uh, possibly degrade the potential for activity of your own body. And where body can also mean a social body, by the way. So this first statement is thoroughly Spinoza. It's the, th the first sentence that you have there. To perceive something in a different way means to acquire new potentials for acting with respect to it is a thoroughly Spinozan statement. <clears throat> and so we might think from this thoroughly Spinozan statement, we might predict from this thoroughly Spinozan statement that the next sentence will have nothing to do with sensation or perception, uh, that it will approach the problem in a highly Spinozan way, from, from the ethics to the body, or rather than the other way around, from soci sociology to biology, if you like to, to put it in a highly anachronistic 21st century manner, uh, but from, from philosophy uh, 
to mechanics. And that's exactly what we see in the next sentence. The next sentence is at the chessboard. To see differently is to play differently. So to see differently is to enhance or to degrade the intellectual potential for play. And for example, one child sees a bunch of black pieces and a bunch of white pieces and has fun putting the white pieces on the white squares and the black pieces on the black squares. And when that gets boring, you just put the black pieces on the white squares and the white pieces on the black squares and so on. Another child sees differently. Another child sees a pair of horses. And that makes him think of a cart drawn by two horses, one black, one white. And then he puts the king in the cart and he has fun steering the cart all around the board. The third child sees not a horse and not a black object, um, but a knight. Uh, and the knight threatens the white pawn and he's playing white. And so he takes defensive action by moving the pawn out of the way, possibly by capturing the knight. And uh, that brings us to our next sentence. By generalizing the process of activity itself, in other words, by taking a single move and then understanding that that move is related to certain rules in the game of chess. I acquire the potential for new relationships with it. We're getting one step closer to what the Danish grandmaster told me back in Beijing. The ability to see 10 moves ahead. Now all three of our children, the one who put the black pieces on the black squares and the white pieces on the white squares, and the one who was playing horsey with a chariot and the king in the chariot, and also the third child who, uh, who took defensive action to defend his white pawn against the attack of the Black Knight. All of these children are making generalizations. All of these children are seeing things abstractly in some way. Color is an abstract notion. Um, and shapes, to recognize the two horses as being some shape is an abstract notion. But only the third child is acquiring the potential for new abstract relations later on in the game that are going to win the game for. Only the third child is developing concepts, not scientific concepts, but concepts like advancing, defending, attacking, retreating, converting. Because when the white pawn advances to the last row, the white pawn can become any piece the child desires. <coughs> and can counterattack and possibly capture the Black Knight. The first two children are responding to their perceptions. The third child is experiencing something like an intellectualized emotion that is focused on changing the environment for the better, for his own interests, rather than responding to it. Now, Vygotsky then says, to speak crudely, it is as if this process has been isolated from the general activity of consciousness. I am conscious of the fact that I remember. What's he talking about memory for? I make my own remembering the object of consciousness. All right, we can say that the child is remembering the defending his white pawn somehow and generalizing from that. An isolation arises here. Isolation? In what sense is it an isolation? Isn't he still sort of very much embedded in the same game? In certain areas, any generalization or abstraction isolates its object. This is, and here we seem to completely lose the plot. And so, 
it's time to look at other places where Vygotsky has used the same material, and there are quite a few. Um, the ones I'm going to recommend to you are three from the pedology. You know I'm a pedology man. Nikolai is a psychologist, and if you ask Nikolai who is Vygotsky, he will say to you right away, Vygotsky was a psychologist. I am not so sure. Hmm. It seems to me that the reason, part of the problem we have trouble understanding Vygotsky is that he was, he belonged to a science that no longer exists, and that science is pedology. But it's an interesting science for you and me, and maybe it should exist. Maybe we should bring it back. So I'm going to, there are three areas in the pedology, three chapters in the pedology where Vygotsky does talk about chess. Uh, one is uh, the crisis at three, and it, with the crisis at three, what Vygotsky is talking about, great chapter, by the way, at the very beginning, there's a passage nobody notices. In the very first paragraph, Vygotsky says, I'm going to, I'm going to um, discuss uh, the crisis at three from three points of view. One of them is, where does it come from? One of them is, what is it doing? And the third one is, the zone of its proximal development. And whenever people talk about the ZPD, they never pay attention to the idea that the zone of proximal development has to do with how near are you to the next age period of the pedology, because we don't think of Vygotsky as a pedologist. But in The Crisis at Three, he does talk about chess, and the way he talks about it is to say, when a child moves from what we can call biological perception, or uh, eidetic perception, or unmediated perception, the kind of thing you do with your eyes, to semantic perception, semic potential, uh, perception, semasiological perception, where you look at an object and you see a word, a word meaning. I'll give you an example. Um, this, well, in English we call this a watch, uh, and there's a different name for a clock. In Russian it's the same name. And uh, a watch is a clock, a clock is a watch. And so the child is immediately faced with the following problem, the problem of having to, um, having to generalize from this object to a gigantic thing on a tower in the center of town, both of which are chess. That is to say, they're clock watches, and they both seem to have the same function. That ability to look at this and see not a piece of glass and two sort of pieces of metal and a bunch of numbers, but to see a time, a time of day, to see it's time for work, it's time for play, it's time for breakfast, lunch, dinner. That ability is what Vygotsky calls semantic perception, and it is one of the central neoformations of uh, early childhood that the child, through language, learns to look at objects and see meanings, see the meanings of those objects. Now, you can see this is related to Vygotsky's chess problem. You can see that uh, the child is able to look at a black horse and see a knight. The child doesn't necessarily have concepts of attack and defend and all those other things. That may come later. It may not. I mean, uh, children, the thing about the ZPD is that it's very big in some children and it's very small in others. And so uh, you have to be ready for the precocious child just as you have to be ready for the child who is 
lagging behind others. And you have to see them as all part of one great child that Vygotsky calls peculiarly the mass child. And I think of all the translation problems that Nikolai and I have had, translating the mass child is going to be, the English Collected Works translates it as average child, which is clearly wrong. It's like, you know, as we say in my hometown of Lake Wobegon in Minnesota, all the little children, bless their souls, are above average. But while it's not true that all the little children, bless their souls, are above average, it is true that all the little children, bless their souls, are mass children. And somehow we are going to have to convey that idea. I'm not sure how we'll do it. That's the crisis at three. In the crisis at seven, let's call it eight, because here in Korea, um, we usually count the 10 months that the child spends in the mother's womb. It's 10 months here, it's not nine months. Um, and so the crisis at seven or eight, but of course these are developmental years. The, the crisis is there when you get there. It's not there when you have your seventh birthday. So the crisis at seven, the symptoms of it are sort of loss of directness and immediacy, kind of a slyness, a coyness, a certain narcissism, a certain kind of mannerism. Uh, Vygotsky describes it as being the child making faces in the, sam in the samovar even when you scold the child. Uh, Vygotsky describes it as being a kind of loss of immediacy and naivete, the kind of thing you see in Charlie Chaplin, this is Vygotsky's example. Um, a kind of an insertion of a mask or a wedge between the outer child and the inner child. That is the crisis at seven. And the crisis at seven brings all of these kind of fakery neoformations. At one point, Vygotsky says the child walks into the room in a jaunty way. <laughs> you can't figure out what is he being jaunty about. <laughs> this is the crisis at seven. And uh, this is probably the moment, this is certainly the moment, according to Vygotsky, when the child begins to internalize not simply objects like a watch, but what he says, what he calls perishvanya. Now, what's the difference between internalizing a perception and internalizing a perishvanya? Well, a lot, because to internalize a, a, an object, all you have to do is to you know, form some kind of idea of the object and what it's for and what it does and so on and so forth. But to internalize a perishvanya, remember that one pole of the perishvanya is always me, myself, and I. And uh, that means that in order to internalize a perishvanya, the child has to have the sense that this is my perception, my experience, and nobody else's. This accounts for the fact that there is a certain narcissism to the insertion of that intellectual. It's not just about intellection. It's also about, because he says, self-love, even <laughs> self-absorption. <laughs> and um, self-reliance, self but which will eventually develop into self-esteem and self-respect and but also a certain sense of um, self-indulgence that the seven-year-old is doing. All of these things are, are new in the seven-year-old. We didn't see them for the most part in preschool. Preschoolers were too busy for that sort of thing. We certainly didn't see it in early childhood. The early childhood is all about curiosity in the outside world. 
but it's, it, it is a very important neoformation of the crisis at seven. And when Vygotsky has to explain this almost unexplainable change that's taking place in the seven-year-old, Vygotsky goes back to the crisis at three and talks about the chess-playing child and says, that chess-playing child has learned to see the board in a completely new way. And we can tell this because the child's behavior in the game is restructured. Imagine the child at seven, where the child has learned to see every single experience as being not simply an event, not simply a happening, but my event, my happening, my action. And I think you can see that we've taken a giant step towards Spinoza, towards Spinoza's idea that uh, Spinoza was a funny guy. He, um, on the one hand, he doesn't seem to believe in freedom of will. He believes that the actions you take are necessary ones. Uh, but he also sees that necessity as being a new kind of freedom. Uh, and Vygotsky's very interested in this because he's interested throughout uh, the history of the development of the higher mental functions. He's interested in what he considers the most interesting problem in the whole of psychology, which is Burden's ass, Burden's donkey. Uh, Burden's ass, as you probably know, is a donkey with one bale of hay on the left, one bale of hay on the right, who starves to death because the donkey cannot decide whether to eat the one on the left or the one on the right. And uh, Vygotsky is very interested in this, not just because there's a, an interesting passage of War and Peace where um, uh, Pierre Zhukov eventually it faced with you know, go, joining the army or and fighting against Napoleon or trying to assassinate Napoleon. He plays a game of solitaire. Uh, and the ability of people to use outside instruments to, to substitute for their own lack of will is a very important part of um, of Vygotsky. So he's very interested in Burden's problem. And so is Spinoza. Spinoza discusses exactly the same problem. Uh, and Spinoza and Burden are essentially on the same page because actually Burden's donkey was made up by Burden's enemies. Burden was one of the first real determinists. He was one of the first medieval physicists who believed that all our actions are determined by physical laws. Uh, and what this meant, according to according to Burden's enemies, anyway, Burden himself didn't write very much, was that um, we have no free will, that what Aristotle writes about free will is wrong. Aristotle believed that our past is finished, determined. Our present is kind of finishable, determinable, but the future is unfinished and undetermined. So there's no free will in the past, there's no free will in the present, but there's a lot of free will in the future. And so, and Burden didn't believe this. Burden believed that with any moral problem, with any ethical problem, with any aesthetic problem, there is one and only one solution. Now, of course, we don't have enough time to figure out in every situation what the best thing to do is or what the right thing to do is. But given enough time, if you were an infinite being with infinite attributes, in other words, if you were God or Spinoza's God, uh, there is essentially one correct moral decision in any given situation. And there is essentially one correct aesthetic judgment in any aesthetic situation. In other words, there's one world. There aren't different kinds of causality for science and for art and for ethics. Uh, there are different levels of human development in all of these fields. So for example, 
it is a notorious truism that psychology is somewhat less developed than physics. Uh, and that the human sciences are in general less developed than the natural sciences, partly because um, we do not build our human sciences on each other. Uh, we do not build, um, for example, psychology on sociology or sociology on biology uh, or bio the way that biology is built on chemistry and chemistry is built on physics. We do not build a hierarchy of different um, sciences the way that the, my father, who's a, a physicist, has managed to do. And that's one of the reasons why we social scientists and the human scientists lag behind and seem to sometimes just be starting over again from the very beginning instead of building on the shoulders of the last person who succeeded in important uh, discoveries. But I am moving too far away from your quotation. Let's go back to Vygotsky. To speak crudely, it is as if this process has been isolated from the general activity of consciousness. I'm conscious of the fact that I remember. I make my own remembering, or any other psychological process, the object of consciousness. Isolation arises here. Any generalization or abstraction, and you notice he distinguishes between generalization and abstraction. They're not the same thing. Generalization, a process of adding on. Abstraction, a sense of taking away, in a sense they're, they're opposite ways of doing the same thing, decontextualizing. This is why conscious awareness, understood as generalization, leads directly to mastery. The process of activity has become a rule of activity, but in order to convert any process into a rule, you have to decontextualize it and then recontextualize it. In other words, textualize it make it into a text. We see this historically when chess moves are notated in a special kind of notation. They're published in newspapers. They're published online. Uh, when, for example, someone is taught elephant chess by a terminal cancer patient in Beijing. We see it when cooking moves are written down as recipes. What is notated and written down is ipso facto, an object of consciousness. That is how we make our thinking, we congeal it, consolidate it, and hand it down to the next generation. This is why when Spinoza talks about how uh, the affectations of the body, the affects, uh, increase and decrease our potential for action, he includes the ideas of those affects. He includes the thoughts of those affects, those two are part of the affect, linked, distinct. Uh, and in isolation and in generalization, we find that the idea becomes a kind of a, a token of the affect. Uh, it becomes a surrogate, uh, a tally, the Chinese would say, for the affection of the body. Okay, so this brings me to the last paragraph, and then I promise I will shut up because I'm starting to run on a little. The foundation of consciousness, the foundation of conscious awareness is the generalization or abstraction of the mental processes, which leads to their mastery. Instruction has a decisive role in this process. Scientific concepts have a unique relationship to the object. 
scientific, non-spontaneous, higher concepts. Higher concepts are not complexes that are given to us by our perception or by our experience, uh, because those become highly dilute as we generalize them. They are experience that has been chewed over, digested, and importantly limited, reined in first by other people. Other people tell you what a clock is. Other people tell you what a correct move in chess is. But then, through our own free choice, through our own free decisions, it is the concept is something that the child has to produce through a process of analysis and resynthesis of the pseudo-concepts that are given to the child by the word meanings of adults around them. Scientific concepts have a unique relationship to the object. This relationship is mediated through other concepts that themselves have an internal hierarchical system of interrelationships. Darwin's tree. This is how Darwin discovered that we all came out of Africa. The fact that species are related to genera, genera to phyla, and so on. All of this is a hierarchical uh, way of ordering concepts that encompasses every living thing. And we find this wherever we find scientific concepts, that to define a, a scientific concept is to create a relative clause that situates that concept in the context of some other concept, some higher concept. Spinoza understands this perfectly. Spinoza says that um, the body is not the same as the idea of the body, which is his definition of the mind, by the way. Spinoza's definition of the mind is the body's idea of itself. <laughs> uh, so the body is not reducible to the idea that the body has of itself. And that the, in the same way, the idea of the idea, and the idea of the idea of the idea, and the idea of the idea of the idea of the idea of the body are all separate, distinct ideas. They're clearly related and they are related hierarchically, but uh, they are distinct in that way. And in, in this, I think we can see that Spinoza is also there in Vygotsky's definition of what a scientific concept is, because Vygotsky's definition of scientific concept, and the reason why I think scientific concept can be applied to aesthetic concepts and to ethical concepts and to all higher concepts, all the products of higher mental functions, is precisely that they have the same hierarchical structure. And that hierarchical structure is there for a reason, so that you can find stuff when you need it, so that you can locate it with respect to other science, scientific concepts and aesthetic concepts and moral concepts. So, the relationship is mediated through other concepts that themselves have an internal hierarchical system of interrelationships. It's apparently in this domain of the scientific concept that conscious awareness of concepts, or the generalization and mastery of concepts, emerges for the first time. And you have to remember that for Vygotsky, to be conscious is to recognize the relationship of a concept and its environment. That's what conscious awareness is. The reason why language is practical conscious, consciousness is that language is what allows other people to understand me and me to understand myself through other people. Consciousness is the practical relationship with the environment. In other words, text, context, 
always concrete and at the same time highly abstract, always general and at the same time incredibly particular, like the relationship between a text and a, concept, a context. So once a new structure of generalization has arisen in one sphere of, of thought, it can, like any other structure, this is the definition of a structure, uh, be transferred without training to all remaining domains of concepts and thought. Why do I say that the trans transferability is the definition of a structure? You got a bicycle. You replace every part of the bicycle more than once, more than twice, more than 10 times. It's still your bicycle because the relationship between all the parts remains the same. A structure is precisely a relationship between parts that is constant. That's what gives any structure its identity. Thus, conscious awareness enters through the gate opened up by the scientific concept. The ability to transfer the relationship between the knight and the pawn to any other relationship between a knight and a pawn and any other relationship between an attacking piece and a defending piece and any other game where it is required to think 10 moves or 20 moves into the future, that ability, that magic gateway, as uh, Halliday would describe it, is what we see in scientific, the higher ethical, the higher logical uh, concept. And I wanna end with one last thing. Well, actually, I want to go back to that picture of the old man teaching a young child. Uh, I want to go back to Shang-Chi. This, let me see if I can get it to appear. Not that. Let's see, go away. Yeah, this one. Uh, this young child being taught by an old man who is probably losing. <laughs> I think what we can see from this example is the great pleasure that people take in instruction. Uh, the great pleasure that I took in being instructed by the cancer patients back in Beijing in 1984, uh, and then going home to my hotel at night and instructing or <laughs> trying to instruct <laughs> other people. Um, it is the ability not just to locate yourself the concept, to know that you can find that concept when you need it. It's the ability to see other people developing the same relationship between concepts that gives us not just the higher concept itself, but the extraordinary emotion of having, the extraordinary emotion that comes with the knowledge that that concept is infinitely extendable among our fellow human beings. I think the reason why I want to end with this is that I think this is the great pleasure of the talks that we have on the video. Uh, I think this is the great achievement that Andy is pointing to when he uh, draws attention of XMCA to your own particular video project. Uh, it's the ability to answer interesting questions that have been interestingly put that gives, that makes this video series such a, a pleasure. And that's all I had to say. <laughs>